0: I'm Erica Signor.
1: I'm Ada Yee. And I'm Julia Turan.
0: And welcome to Brains in Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Boris Heifetz, a medical resident in the Department of Anathesiology, as well as a postdoctoral researcher in Rob Malenka's lab here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, Boris.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Boris, so we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. Can you describe it to us and walk us through how to make it?
2: The mojito. So it's kind of, it's, it's actually pretty easy to describe since I'm looking at the ingredients, but I know it mostly <laughs> by, by flavor and by the fact that when... I remember this one night in New York, so I was in New York for for a number of years, and it, it gets really hot at night sometimes in New York, which we don't we don't have the luxury of here in, in Palo Alto. But on a hot night in New York in the village, and you walk into a bar and there's nothing better than a mojito. <laughs> it's just it goes down so smoothly and it's just it tastes it, anyway, well, you have to drink one to know what it tastes like. but um, so let's see. we have some lime, some uh, some mint some sugar uh plenty of alcohol uh and some uh some ice and there you go a little a little syrup a little syrup to help things uh go down and try not to, <laughs> try not to drink too many of them
0: so All while right. you're making that uh do you remember the first time you ever had a mojito
2: the first time, so I learned how to drink with whiskey sours, which is a terrible way to learn how to drink because you just really you can't taste them, or you can't taste any alcohol in them. So it's usually four or five before you realize what happened. Um, so once once I once I graduated from that and and uh, you know learned how to be a, slightly slightly more uh, discerning in my my cocktail selection, I, I learned about mojitos. One of my friends in, in New York introduced me to them in his in his apartment on one of those hot New York nights that uh, I mentioned and mm-hmm. uh, it's the the main thing that's that stopped me from uh having more of them is that they're just so painful to make sometimes especially <laughs> when you have more than one <laughs> so i have the i have the mint and i have the syrup there we go and then i'm going to do a little muddling after that as much muddling <laughs> as we can <laughs> That's the part. That's the part. That's, you never want to serve this at parties. <laughs> I remember we had a happy hour in graduate school. Where one of my co-graduate students, he it's like, I'm going to make mojitos for everyone. And he just sat there during the whole happy hour. Tearing <laughs> leaves. It's so, it was so sad. It was, it was just hard to watch. I, I vowed I'd never do that. Okay, so now it's time for some, some of the juice.
0: What kind of liquor goes into it?
2: Um. Apparently, rum. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: everybody's ever, always made them for
3: you.
2: Totally spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> that poor friend. That's why. That's why I usually drink single malt scotch. It's very. There's one ingredient. And if you want, you can put in some ice.
0: Well, that's just too fancy.
2: Yeah. Oh. All right. We're almost there. We're at the ice. See how long this is taking? It this does is take like... it
0: quite, quite some time. Oh, but but yeah. it's worth it, right? It's, it's
2: totally worth it, especially if someone else does it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: All, All right. right. Anyway. So, so yeah, cheers. Cheers.
1: Cheers. All right. Sounds
3: good.
0: That's mm. a very refreshing beverage. Cheers. Yes. that's It's quite good.
3: Let's get started. So yep. so we know you're both a doctor and a scientist. And so I actually happen to work next door to Boris, um, for those of you that don't know. And so often I, I'm, I'm there like 9 or 10 at night, and I and I usually see Boris come in right around that time, and he's got like an energy drink, and he's like, hey, Boris. <laughs> <laughs> and like I leave, and he's there, and maybe he's starting some recordings. I don't know. And then and then I come back in the morning, hey, Boris, he's still there. I'm <laughs> just wondering, so, so what kind of schedule do you have, and when do you sleep? Do you sleep? <laughs> I do
2: sleep. Sleep is one of my favorite things to do. I wish I could do more of it. Uh that's one of the for better or worse, trying to be in the operating room a day a week and be in the lab. You know, everyone says like, oh, you're you're eighty percent in the lab and really that's you know, that's no one in the lab thinks I'm eighty percent in the lab. <laughs> there's no there's no eighty percent expectation, unfortunately. So so it's a day a week in the OR and then uh the rest of the time in the lab and then usually dinner with my family and I've two very cute kids. Daughters, Zoe and Vivian, who are seven and two, respectively, uh, the, I try and see them, too. So mm-hmm. that really only leaves uh, certain windows of time to get stuff done. And, uh, my main priority is getting enough sleep before I go to the OR. Other than that, it's yeah. all, all, uh, all bets are off. And it's amazing how much you can get done at night. It's, uh, it's quiet. It's quiet.
0: Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of work do you do in the OR?
2: So I'm a. I actually just finished residency, so now I'm an attending anesthesiologist. And uh, for now, I'm still getting the lay of the land, being an independent practitioner. So I do all kinds of cases, uh, everything from orthopedics to neurosurgical anesthesia. And it's a it's a very different pace from uh, the lab. the The stakes are quite a bit higher, but a lot mm. of the principles are kind of the same as you know pharmacology and physiology. That's uh, that's really what drew me to anesthesia, this idea that every, you know, every patient you have, you know, control over the outcome. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's one of the things I love about it. I'm, will eventually specialize in neurological surgery, anesthesia, neurosurgical anesthesia, I guess would be Mm -hmm. the other way to put it. Everyone who bothers to do two degrees, you know, ideally you want to combine the, the, the clinical and the research side as much as possible. So with anesthesia, it's, it's, it's not actually that straightforward because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's, in some sense, it's applied neuroscience, but really, you know, um, there's not so many areas of overlap like in psychiatry or neurology. Mm-hmm. So, but especially in functional neurosurgery, this is one of those cases where, you know, we as anesthesiologists have all of this control over neurophysiology and, um, you know, and the surgeons are really trying to achieve a functional outcome. So functional neurosurgery means things like epilepsy or uh, Parkinson's disease, deep brain stimulators, you know, cortical uh, grids. I mean, all all kinds of, um, you know, different approaches that they take to treat disorders of neurological function rather than, uh, let's say, plumbing, like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, aneurysms or, you know, blood clots or Mm -hmm. things like that, which is a very different, uh, you know, kind of neurosurgical practice.
0: So is there a different uh, approach that you take, when treating those patients for with anesthesiology, a functional patient versus the plumbing patient.
2: Yeah. So this is what's so what, what actually drives me crazy is that um, for you know for plumbing patients or patients with tumors or mm-hmm. you know things in their brainstem, we take so much care. Everything is you know on a on a razor's edge of trying to keep their their cerebral blood volume you know at the perfect uh, level and trying to keep their you know cerebral perfusion just right and you know keep them asleep and manage all these factors. Whereas for functional neurosurgery it's really it's a uh, you know as an example, deep brain stimulation is basically the it, the less anesthesia you give, the better as in mm-hmm. this is an awake procedure, and it's really anything that we do for the most part is seen as interference is that you know things that might change the electrical signature that they're looking for so mm-hmm. it's really it's to me it's a huge missed opportunity because this is one area where we actually you know i I understand their point of view is that, you know, they're trying to diagnose something and then, you know, treat it with this electrical implant. Um, my point of view is, well, after there's a the diagnosis part, but there's also a therapeutic element here that mm-hmm. we're completely, you know, missing out on that it's really, it's, you know, we have half of the piece, you know, with just the electrical electrical implant. But, you know, if you look at any other field of surgery or medicine, you know, it's usually it's a combination of things. For example, with a heart transplant, you want to make sure that you know, the patient is ready, as ready as they're going to be for a heart transplant. If they're going to get a liver, you want to make sure that, you know, you give them all kinds of immune suppression and Mm -hmm. all these kind of adjuvant therapies that go along with any kind of major procedure. And so that approach is still in its infancy for functional neurosurgery. We really don't know what we, we know that putting an electrode in and turning it on and letting it go until the batteries run out seems to work for some reason uh-huh. we don't really understand why we don't really understand what kind of things can make can improve upon that at all
3: so, uh-huh. so it's really just a difference it's a result of lack of basic understanding or just tradition or
2: yeah it's I mean this is a relatively new procedure uh, it's gained in popularity over the last 10 years there's a couple of big trials in uh, New England journal you know the premier medical journals with lots of patients that Deep brain stimulation works. It works the earlier you do it, but there's still it's uh there's a lot of guesswork as to why it works, and uh, then there's crazy things like if you do the same thing with radiation. You know, it also seems to work in animal models. So it's really, it's everything from, you know, it, you can entertain any hypothesis from, you know, you, you're basically creating a lesion to you're putting in a pacemaker to disrupting cortical rhythms to, you know, injuring tissue with radiation. And it's really, it's still, it's uh, it's wide open.
3: And so did you always know you wanted to do research or was this something, like, is, has this kind of experience of what you're seeing in the OR kind of leading towards that?
2: So I, I always knew I wanted to do neuroscience. Um I think from a very early age, somehow, and I actually didn't think I wanted to do clinical medicine at all. Um, it was my my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, who were all physicians uh, and scientists to some extent. Uh, they I, they they really they were really excited about me doing medicine as well, and mm-hmm. I think excited is a very um, <laughs> Uh, generous term. I don't know. Maybe not quite the right term for what they were, but they were really they were heavily invested in, it. and I saw how much you know they got out of it, and it seemed like a good idea. I'm very glad I took their advice ultimately. But so it's something like I knew I wanted to do science, and then as I've been uh, kind of you know clinical medicine and working with patients has definitely grown on me, you know tremendously over the course of residency, and you know the more time I spend in the OR, the more I see that you know, all these things that we discover in the lab, all of these, you know, we, we've we learned so much about LTP and LTD and, you know, studying synapses, and none of it has jumped over to clinical practice. And mm-hmm. I can just see, you know, you're, it's like looking a disconnect right in the face as, mm-hmm. you know, walking from the lab to the OR, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, they're speaking two totally different languages.
1: So, Boris, what's the most embarrassing thing <laughs> you've done as a doctor? <laughs>
2: So here's the thing about embarrassing moments in medicine is (laughs) that um, we tried this actually – in my first year of residency is like everyone submit your funniest moment as an anesthesia, first year (laughs) anesthesia resident. And we all submitted moments and then we read them to each other and we're like this is horrifying. (laughs) None of these are repeatable. (laughs)
4: Learning experience. (laughs) Yeah, like you never want to you know, embarrassing
2: an embarrassing learning experience in a hospital environment. (laughs) It's unfortunately uh, not something you ever really want to talk about outside of you know, I, re- I think I'm just going to have to take a pass at this, call. <laughs> this you know, whole line there of questioning. Right.
0: There you know. so, so you talked a little bit about why you wanted to do clinical research, but why did you choose anesthesiology in particular?
2: So the the sad, sad truth is I really thought I was going to be a neurologist, mm-hmm. and I did a neurology rotation, and I, I kind of cried myself to sleep <laughs> um, <laughs> thinking – I could do this. I could, I could do this. I could do this. I could probably do this. I could sweat it out and do a clinical research career. And then I did a day just to see what it was like. I actually already had my letters written for neurology. I did a day in the OR and I was very confused because I wanted to stay and I was interested in coming back. And then the next day I (laughs) kind of had the same feeling again. And it was a revelation to me that I could, you know, enjoy what I was doing in the hospital that much. And, um, that you know it was it was obvious i was i'm very lucky a lot of people don't have that gut reaction
4: mm-hmm. to
2: a particular field the hardest thing honestly is bridging uh science and anesthesia because anesthesia unlike neurology and psychiatry really has i mean it covers everything from sepsis trauma you know uh, anesthetic mechanisms like the research is just so, you know, so wide, so mm-hmm. widespread that it's, there isn't really a neuroscience. I mean, there, it's not, it's nothing like it is in the other, like kind of allied fields of, um, of neuroscience. So that, that was the biggest challenge actually is trying to find a way to fit science with, uh, you know, the career choice that was just obvious to me that I needed to make.
0: Yeah. Do we have an understanding of what anesthesia does to the brain? <laughs>
2: Of course not. <laughs> Here, let me give you an example. You take a little, you take a, a, a fluorinated hydrocarbon called isofluorine and you pump your brain full of it. And within minutes, you're completely unconscious. What does is isofluorin bind to? I don't know. Everything. <laughs> Everything in the brain. There's, you know, ideas about um, it gets into the membrane. There's this, like... Meyerton overhouse effect I actually can't even remember that oh, what it's called but they, you know again it's there's so many um, targets for volatile anesthetics that people people are still interested in developing um you know, trying to understand how anesthetics work. Some anesthetics are much better understood mm-hmm. than others, like propofol. You know, Michael Jackson's uh, you know drug of choice. Um, you know, ketamine. These are all like general anesthetics that we use that are a little bit better understood. You know that xenon is one of the up-and-coming anesthetics, like <laughs> a noble gas, a noble gas for using general anesthesia. And it's like I don't even want to speculate on what the mechanism is. It's, so it's there. There is a lot of uncertainty. the The problem is that. Unlike in the '90s, like I think, or in the late '80s, there was this 2020 report that says like one in two thousand people die, you know, or have like severe brain damage after going to the operating room. So this is like a huge wake up call. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you know, we've reduced the mortality in anesthesia uh, to one in two hundred thousand, one in three hundred thousand. I mean, this this is like the most the safest field in medicine now. Mm-hmm. So. Are we really going to try and develop new anesthetics that are even safer? It's really—it's hard to improve upon. I mean, there are, there are obviously caveats to that. Mm-hmm. So the point is that, you know, in terms of like specific drugs, I think that we're not going to make much more headway uh, on that. However, there's a lot of interesting research on what systems, what neurological systems kind of come on and offline over mm-hmm. the course of anesthesia. And if you think about it, there's no better way to study consciousness than anesthesia. Like where else do you have that, you know, sudden reversible loss of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So we're still out kind of in in hand-wavy territory.
0: So how similar is it to to actual just normal sleep? Because you don't dream, but do you have the same sort of like slow-wave sleep and that sort of thing? Has anyone looked at like how different chemicals in the brain are turned on and off during anesthesia and how that compares to normal healthy sleep
2: absolutely uh so Emery brown who's uh he's a anesthesiologist at mass general and also a well respected neuroscientist he, he has this you know very nice kind of diagram that he shows of basically there's all the stages of sleep
4: mm-hmm. and
2: then once you're at the you know the bottommost stage of sleep that's when you really start anesthe- anesthesia so there really are just fundamentally different neurological processes. The rare instances where you have people becoming, like, aware under anesthesia, like, these are the scariest things, you know, that you can think of, really. But um, those are, you know, those are really the most interesting cases where you have some kind of bleed through between those, you know, states of profound anesthetic depth and jumping up into a dream-like state where, you know, you know that when you have dreams, you're, you know, at least more susceptible to input from the outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are very interesting, uh, interesting kind of cases to study. Um, but we're still in the descriptive state mm-hmm. of trying to just understand, like, what are the neurological, you know, the, the circuit-based mechanisms for, um, you know, levels of consciousness.
0: So when you're under anesthesia, do you become paralyzed the same way you do in sleep or is it you just?
2: So sleep, I guess you can think of as a, you know, a coordinated like a dance, I guess. You know, uh-huh. you go in and out of different stages of sleep. Anesthesia is more like a, a hammer, uh-huh. where you're basically forced into one particular corner of neurological function, and you stay there, um, <laughs> you know, until until we bring you out. So, um, paralysis is like sleep paralysis is something very uh, particular to sleep and to REM sleep. Um, in general, in anesthesia, any. You know, the, the the classic way to define a successful anesthetic is, you know, no movement to incision. So that doesn't mean you're paralyzed. It just means that you don't feel anything. Uh-huh. Um, there are also paralytics that we give uh, to facilitate, you know, abdominal surgery, things like that. So it's actually it's, it's just profoundly different than than sleep. We have a lot more control that's what it's it's a little bit of an illusion because the sum total of the different anesthetic drugs we use i don't think is really ever going to be the same as uh, something as complex as you know a sleep state for mm-hmm. example so we can make somebody you know less conscious more conscious paralyzed you know we can make their heart rate and blood pressure go down go up but it's still it's not you know the sum of the, its parts is not quite a you know the same as a coherent circuit state
1: so how did you end up working in Rob Malenka's lab? And do you remember the first time that you met him and what that interview was like?
2: <laughs> so it wasn't quite an interview, I guess. Um, I met Rob at the Gordon Research Conference in 2005. So my my uh, my PhD advisor, is, uh, my mentor was Pablo Castillo, who's awesome. And he was a postdoc uh, of Rob's. So I had... I'd already heard a lot about uh, Rob Malenka just by reputation, so, you know, this seemed like uh, a, a decent idea uh, to begin with. So I was at the GRC in 2005 uh, with Pablo, and, you know, it was an aspiring MD-PhD. Rob was clearly, you know, he'd made it, and so I wanted to know, you know, what do I do? What did you do? So I flagged him down at some point. You know, Pablo introduced us, and I said, you know, I really can give you some advice on, like, wh- you know, what what should I do a residency in? And he said, Okay, okay, just just find me before the end of the meeting. You know, I'll give you I'll give you my spiel.
4: <laughs> you know, I have
2: a standard spiel I give for all my, you know, Mudfud students. Like, okay, great. So it was like the last, last day of the conference. And Rob was sitting there with Roger and Nicole and with Dick Chen and with a gay cavalo, a jumpsuit off, and all the. Yeah. I mean, it would I I really had to. Not just, an
0: intimidating crowd at all. Not at all.
2: Yeah. So I just sat myself down at the big boy table, and I waited <laughs> patiently right next to Rob until he was finished talking to whomever he was talking to, and then uh, I collared him and. You know, he gave me his standard spiel. And uh, I said thank you and went on my way. Uh, so I was very proud of myself. Um, but as I said, I'm pretty sure I made absolutely no impression on him. <laughs> so that was the first time I met Rob. The first time I would say we met <laughs> was when I was a resident. So it was after my first year of residency at Stanford. uh, And I had an idea for, you know, what I wanted to do for a project. And it basically revolved around taking, you know, the things we were doing in slice, looking at plasticity in, you know, brain slices and moving that into something a little bit more um, of a, you know, systems, (laughs) as as we like to say, like a a behavior, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Parkinson's and deep brain stimulation. So I asked Pablo my mentor if he would introduce me to Rob if he would uh you know send me a, send me a letter and so Rob was that's one of the the i think a a mark of a great scientist and a great uh professional is he responded within a day it was uh-huh. amazing and that's something i've noticed with a number of uh you know number of people at that level that you know the just the degree of professionalism is really it's amazing so he responded and he you know we i, I met him in his office and He basically, you know, told me pretty much that I wouldn't be there unless Pablo had said something nice. (laughs) So thank you, Pablo, if you ever hear this. And uh, yeah, and he basically agreed to take me in his lab.
3: So uh, maybe start by explaining what you meant by brain slice and plasticity, and then Mm -hmm. we can go into how you're going to, how you're planning to link that to more uh, translational.
2: Sure. So let's, let's rock it. Let's rock it back to the 70s for a second. (laughs) Eric Kandel, who authored our favorite textbook in neuroscience, the you know, Principles of Neural Science, uh, his, one of his major contributions to neuroscience was this idea that changes in synaptic strength are linked to uh, behavior. And he did this in a sea snail, Aplesia. And that made caused a lot of excitement. You
1: know, can you tell us what a change in synaptic strength really is?
2: Oh sure, sure. So the idea is going going even you know a, a bigger picture like what is a what is a memory? what is how is it that you can learn anything? And um, you know if you think about like Pavlov's Pavlov's dogs, right the idea that you associate a cue like a you know the bell with food and eventually the the bell itself, even without the food, will produce the same you know, kind of response, or mm-hmm. the same response in the dogs, which is the salivation. So somehow they've learned that the bell means food, right? So what is the, what's the neurological basis of that? I would say we still are not really entirely sure, but um, if you simplify it, um, and that's why they went to the sea snail, but basically associating something that's uh, painful Mm-hmm. Um, with something that's not painful can produce the same response in a sea slug. Let me, let me rephrase that a little bit. So just like the um, the you have the food and the and the and the and the, the bell with the, <laughs> with the dogs uh, and. You know, you start with the the food producing the you know triggering this response, and then the eventually just the bell itself will trigger the response. So, if you take a sea snail, which is a lot simpler than a dog and a lot more experimentally tractable, and people don't have the same kind of emotional attachment to, <laughs> then what you find is that if you shock it at you know this particular spot, that it'll withdraw. It's a like gill withdrawal reflex. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. I wouldn't really <laughs> want to be shocked. And if you pair that. With a like a, a non-painful, a non-painful stimulus, yeah. that eventually they will associate even the non uh, non-painful stimulus, and they'll withdraw their their gill.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's you know that's like a, a very basic form of learning. And although that's not exactly what he showed in these first papers, the, the the point is the same is that somehow triggering a pathway, triggering a neural pathway where one neuron talks to another neuron, and that second neuron produces a behavioral response. if you do something to that to the first part of that link that you can forever change the way the animal responds then to that particular input that sensory input. The experiment that uh, Eric Kandel did was basically taking this the sea snail, the sea slug um, aplesia, he would stimulate it stimulate one of the nerves, and it would produce this uh, withdrawal reflex. And then what he did is he would pulse it at a hundred hertz. It was like faster than uh, you know anything that the snail would usually see, but is kind of like a kind of similar to like a, a shock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the next time you trigger that that gill uh, escape re- reflex, you have a much bigger response. This long term facilitation, mm-hmm. um, and that response would stay elevated for hours, days.
0: If you're trying to translate that to a human behavior that people might be familiar with, is that something like post-traumatic stress disorder where something that's otherwise innocuous might cause a strong emotional response?
2: Or even something uh, simpler is like single trial learning, like stove, you know, a hot stove. Uh-huh. You're not going to do that again. Right. Right. So that's, you know, we have a very powerful experience going in, uh, you know, that sensory pathway uh-huh. um, that produces a kind of ingrained <laughs> motor output. So now even sometimes the site of that, you know, the stove might, you know,
0: Eaten. Right. So, so, for example, like, this happens to me a lot where I have this sweater that I'm actually wearing today that mm-hmm. causes me to have little electric shocks when I, like, touch metal things. Mm-hmm. And so after that happens for a t- few times, wore this sweater a few days in a row, then after that, every time I go to touch the door of my car, for example, like, I'll hesitate and I'll be afraid to touch the door. <laughs>
4: so is that what you
2: mean? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. It means you're smart.
0: <laughs> Even if I'm not wearing my sweater and I know I'm not going to get shocked, I still, like, can't do it the first Sen- time.
2: Sensitization. Yes, so yeah, these are I mean to be not not to put too fine a point on it. these are a little bit different from you know classical conditioning, but it's still has the same idea uh-huh. that you know by activating some sensory pathway by you know some like a, a strong sensory experience like a shock can modify your future behavior can modify you know the the that motor pathway that you. That you trigger from from that that point on, uh-huh. so that's um, yeah. So I mean, so the analog exists in people too. It's obviously a little more difficult to study than in the the <laughs> snail. But the the, the the thing, the beauty of doing this in a snail is that you know you can isolate the actual neurons involved, and you can recreate the you know whole spectrum from synapse, you know, from one neuron talking to another across a synapse, which is the the term for the you know how neurons interface and uh you can you know from there uh you know how they how they talk to each other basically all the way up to their behavior and how changes in how they connect to each other with you know across that synapse those changes can directly translate into behavioral changes so you can do that in a snail and you it's much much harder to do that in you know an animal. It's complicated even as a mouse mm-hmm. um so that that's really the basis. That gave people this idea that well, if we you know if that's if that's true, if changes in synapses are related to changes in behavior, you know, then what's underneath a memory? Surely a memory, you know i I, I love my my mom's apple pie. You know, surely that must be represented somewhere in some complex network of, you know, strength and synapses. You know, every time I smell something that, you know, that that network is somehow, you know, been modified by plasticity. Mm-hmm. So to, to take it to even more, um, I guess, to a more practical level is uh, in diseases. So in the disease states, this is where you have like sometimes very clear malfunctions of neural circuitry. So. Parkinson's disease, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's one of the things I'm, I'm studying right now is there's, you know, you have a lot, uh, Parkinson's is a disease where, you know, you, you, you move slowly, you know, your uh, movements get much more, um, much more rigid, you know, your, your face is rigid, you also, you know, there are all kinds of cognitive uh, symptoms as well. And it's characterized by, uh, there's all kinds of changes that we see in the brains of people with Parkinson's in these particular areas of the brain called the basal ganglia.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So what's – and here, here's the link. Here's truly the link with, uh, you know, the, the work from Eric Kandel is that in the 80s, 80s or 90s, um, this uh, group in France showed that, you know, you, you could basically – you could put in an electrode into one of these basal ganglia nuclei and by, you know, f- turning it on at, you know, firing 100 times a second – you could basically, cha- you know, eliminate those symptoms. At first, it was in uh, monkeys, but eventually, in patients, they did it, and, and their symptoms would just go away immediately. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the same thing that we're doing in the sea snail. That's the same thing that, as I was when I was a graduate student, we that's the same thing we were doing in slices of brain, trying to understand how this works in uh, mice and rats. You know, we, we doing all these complex manipulations to individual neurons. Trying to understand how does how do those synaptic changes occur, and how do, you know what does that mean for memory or, or mm-hmm. learning? And here we have an example where they just they just you know d- did an end run. They just you know jammed in the electrode, turned it on, and then bang, you have a behavioral result. Now, what's shocking to me is that when you turn off the electrode, the symptoms come right back.
4: Mm-hmm. So
2: here is the key point where it's it's just fundamentally different from everything that we've been kind of assuming in, in in neuroscience. You know, there are a hundred labs where you study the process of synaptic changes, of synaptic change by driving the system at, you know, a hundred hertz. Uh-huh. And then you see the change and then you try and understand what happened. Here's an example where you've driven the system at a hundred hertz and nothing happened. It's the only time. <laughs> it's the only time that nothing seems to have occurred. So my first thought was, well, it would just seem so easy that if we could just push the system to be more like all these other systems that we study, you know, in you know, brain slices and, you know, snails and things like that, then maybe that's something that could, you know, benefit, benefit patients with Parkinson's. Even if you don't turn off the stimulator forever, you know, you just use less power, fewer battery changes, fewer trips to the operating room. So this really, it seemed like a clear benefit for uh, you know, patients with, with Parkinson's.
3: So can I just clarify something for a second? So you're saying that the kind of stimulation these patients are getting is basically similar to what you can usually use to invoke this kind of synaptic strengthening you are talking about um, exactly. in the experiment. But often this is done in patients that have some kind of disorder, so there's something different normally with these patients. Is that one reason why you think we're not seeing this?
2: I don't think so, actually. I think that a large part of the reason is... Maybe one way to think about it is size. If, if, You know, when you think about the size of the electrode you use and the size of a, you know, a plesia neuron, is big. You're, so you're doing, maybe we're you're not driving
3: big. it that hard. We're just not driving
2: it that hard. And honestly, you know, that was it, it still kind of makes me laugh that, you know, when I was in Pablo's lab as a graduate student, you know, we would that's the experiment we would do. We put in an electrode and just. You know, shock the ever-loving crap out of a slice of tissue, you know, at 100 hertz for a couple seconds, and then you know, now we're studying something. This is what we're gonna, you know, we're we're gonna learn mm-hmm. about memory this way. And you know, people will always say like, what does that have to do with memory? It's so artificial.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
2: And then finally, I feel like I have the last laugh because, well, actually, it turns out that that's exactly, <laughs> you know, that's that's that is the. This is the best model to study deep, something like deep brain stimulation uh-huh. and if anything, deep brain stimulation is kind of maybe not quite uh profound enough of a of a of a stimulus that that's what that's really what we've learned over the last couple of decades from you know work in brain slices and looking at uh you know synaptic events is that it's not just the jamming of the electrode <laughs> and the firing that's required. There's something else that usually you're driving the system in a way that you also activate basically this this whole class of other receptors. So they're you know uh, other other basically intracellular events that you're that you're triggering during the stimulation. And it's not just from the electrical stimulus. You're releasing things like glutamate, cannabinoids, opioids, mm-hmm. uh, nitric oxide, all kinds of other things that have really profound effects on how synapses operate.
0: Are, are you talking about in the Parkinson's patients or in the slice? In, in slices. In slices. Okay. You're getting all of these extra things yeah. going on.
2: So that's really, that to me, that's the biggest difference is that um, just that we're not, uh you know we're driving the system in slices in a way that we just haven't gotten to yet
0: in a human in
2: in a human and that's really you know if we can just facilitate that um uh-huh. then we really can open the door to some new therapies. So, so
3: let's find the conditions in which we can do the same experiment we do in the lab, basically exactly. to help a person.
2: Exactly.
0: So can can we take a step back for a second? So You're you saying that um, as a when you were in graduate school, uh, you would study learning by using brain slices. Um, but you know, a slice of brain. I, are you studying mice at this point, or it yeah, mice and rats? Mice and rats. So a, a brain slice doesn't have behavioral outputs. It doesn't. You don't think of a of a you know, piece of tissue isolated from its host is having a memory. So how do you study things like learning a memory and a piece of isolated tissue from an animal?
2: That's an excellent question. I think that's actually the single best uh, criticism of <laughs> pure electrophysiology <laughs> that I can think of, is that really, you know, yeah. we've, um,
4: <laughs> we've
2: abstracted, you know, really, I mean, in large part because you know, of these early findings where these changes in synaptic strength look like they're so tightly linked to behavior. It's like, well, if we can just understand how synapses, you know, facilitate or potentiate or depress in this long-term basis, then maybe, you know, th- that will lead us to an understanding of learning and memory. So in our, in you know, my particular case in graduate school, you know, the first paper that, uh, I I was on. We were looking at this knockout, actually, from Tom Sudoff's Um, (laughs) lab—the Rim1 alpha knockout—that had all these changes. uh, Actually, not so many, but it was like kind of a subtle subtle change in uh, in memory. So,
3: by knockout, you mean it's missing this molecule? Yes.
2: So, it's missing this, you know, particular molecule that's required for uh, certain types of synaptic changes. Mm -hmm. So, that's really, you know, this is another uh, link in the chain that you have. You know, you've eliminated the ability of some synapses to undergo particular types of long-term changes. Okay. So if you've done that and now you've affected behavior, well, the clear, you know, the, the inescapable conclusion, although, you know, there's always room for debate, is that somehow those forms of plasticity are possibly, you know, are implicated in learning and memory. Uh-huh. So that's, you know, and, and part of what we were doing is basically cataloging, well, what's different? What's different about this mouse? Like, let's look at a bunch of different classes of plasticity. There's, and, you know, without getting too, too far into the weeds, there's different ways that you can trigger plasticity and different ways that plasticity that synapses express. There's excitatory synapses, inhibitory synapses. Anyway, so that's really what, what we were interested in is which synapses are involved. And we found, you know, particular uh synapses and types of plasticity that seem to be gone in this uh in this this mutant so that it's it's an indirect link mm-hmm. it's um and that's you know unfortunately how the science progresses is in very small steps uh-huh. <laughs> but you know that that's really the impetus to uh you know study all of these uh individual proteins that are involved in the you know the makeup of the synaptic uh of the, of the synapse basically is you know by removing one or mutating one, do we see a change in function that might be linked to what we to the behavior that results in this animal that's missing this key mm-hmm. protein? So, like
0: how do you how, study learning and memory in slice?
2: So really, you don't. But uh, um, so, what's yeah. the readout
0: that you use then?
2: So the readout is basically it's it's and again it all kind of rests on this assumption that a long term memory. Cre- has to be stored somewhere. There must be some mm. physical analog. So a very you know a likely candidate is a change in synaptic strength. A memory is uh, linked to some change in the function of synapses somewhere in the brain. Uh-huh. So what part of the brain? The hippocampus. That's our favorite part of the brain. That's, you know, the Brendan Milner in the 50s. <laughs> Uh, this or 50s, it's probably the 50s. The 50s. Um, described this patient, HM, you know, a very famous patient who recently passed away who had a, you know, bilateral temporal lobectomy, though. So they removed both hippocampi. And, you know, every time he met someone, it was, you know, for the first time. His mm. last memory was, you know, uh, the day before surgery <laughs> to an approximation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that really gave us a hint that this brain region was so critical for, for learning and memory. So, you know, we, uh, the hippocampus is probably one of the most studied areas of the brain mm-hmm. uh, still to this day.
0: Yeah. So you've been talking a little bit about using this deep brain stimulation for treating Parkinson's disease. So can you sh- just sort of t- explain what exactly the deep brain stimulation is and what it does in a Parkinson's disease patient? Why? What brain regions are being stimulated and why does the stimulation cause an effect?
2: So this is a hot topic. There is, you know, it's like I said, it's still, I would say, unclear what exactly is happening. And there there are competing ideas. Basically, there are two brain areas that are most commonly targeted. And these are two brain areas in this general deep region of the brain called the basal ganglia. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Uh, It's a group of what we call nuclei, uh, which are collections of cell bodies, neurons. Uh, And one of these is called the subthalamic nucleus. And the other one is uh, globus pallidus. That's the Pars interna. It's one of the subdivisions of this uh, output nucleus, and basically, these are both areas. The basal ganglia, as a whole, this is a group of structures that basically modulates movement. So, when you're going to kick a soccer ball, there is a very kind of a, a high-speed interplay between you seeing the ball and targeting your movements, and you know performing this complex action. So, the basal ganglia are involved in that, mm-hmm. and these are these two places where we typically put the deep brain stimulators are areas that are typically considered output nuclei. So they go from the basal ganglia out to the cortex, out to the motor pathway, um, you know, out to the thalamus. You know, basically all the other uh, engaging other parts of the brain. So uh, it's been known for since sixties. I don't know a long time. It's been <laughs> known for a long time that uh, if you just lesion. Uh, these these pathways that you can actually get an improvement in Parkinsonian symptoms. So that's why people tend to you know and, and they introduced this idea of electrocautery, where basically you put in an electrode and you burn it, so rather than cutting it out. Mm-hmm. And then they got to this point of well, let's just let's heat it up a little bit. Let's just you know burn you know do a hundred hertz and we'll just leave it on, and then maybe we can turn it off and then you know do it again tomorrow. And that's you know it's not exactly how it happened, but that's that's uh, kind of describes the, um, the the evolution of deep brain stimulation is that it started out basically as an ablative procedure where you take out the structure, and then it developed into something where you could just turn it on and turn it off. And that's really one of the beauties of deep brain stimulation is that you can. It's reversible. Mm-hmm. It's also the problem. Is that yeah. <laughs> you turn it off, and it's, uh, it doesn't stick. But just to, to answer your question, what does it? What does it do? There's uh, there are several ideas. I think that there's some consensus in that it it seems to silence this noise, this very um, this bothersome noise. It's, it's called a beta oscillation. This is basically what's called hypersynchrony. Or um, you know, two parts of the brain that are talking to each other, kind of inappropriately. So think of—I I think of them as like students in class that are misbehaving
4: mm-hmm. and disrupting <laughs> the entire class. Uh-huh.
2: And if you can just make those two students be quiet, then the the rest of the class can hear—you know—can hear the lecture. Uh-huh. And that's sort of how I imagine deep brain stimulation to work. Is that you know? And, and again, there's a lot of there's evidence for uh, this on on multiple levels, but. Um, basically silencing this kind of pathological uh, aspect of, uh, you know, basal ganglia function, this, you know, beta uh, oscillation allows other information to come and go a little more freely.
0: Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned before that those brain areas are required for just normal movement, though. So how does ablating them or stopping their function improve the symptoms of Parkinson's disease?
2: That's, that's an excellent question. That, that's, I think, one of the most consternating aspects of this is that it's you know how is it that you you know we think that we're doing something we always want to be doing something you know that we you know i I want to believe that we're pacing the subthalamic nucleus and that we're shutting down inputs from the rest of the brain but yet i can achieve the same result by just cutting it out so how is that (laughs) you know it it kind of takes the takes a little bit of the glow off the whole you know bioengineering thing but i i think actually um i think that's very unclear we don't really do the literature for ablation is um, not it's, – it's, it's really – it's died out to, to a large extent, as far as I know, that much more is focused on how do you, like, functionally – Alter you know the connectivity of this brain region, like alter its you know overall output.
0: Uh huh. So you 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 mentioned that that um, that it's reversible, but it, it's also very the effects. The positive effects are quite instantaneous, as are losing of those effects. So is is this therapy only good then in patients who are recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease? Because you imagine there'd be some long term irreversible effects of having this disorder for you know ten years or whatever.
2: It uh, because it's a invasive procedure. I mean. It, if you you know if your uh you know your grandmother had parkinson's fire your grandmother had parkinson's up and you know if i wasn't uh in the field i was I would probably not want to refer her to brain surgery right away. and and that's been kind of the FDA stance as well, is that um, it started out as, you know, something that was appropriate for, you know, late-stage Parkinson's that's refractory to treatment. That's usually how all these experimental treatments start. Invasive brain implants are usually first tested in uh, patients that have not responded to traditional therapy. Um, And that's, you know, I think that's actually pretty universal. Um, So as it's been shown to improve function in these patients that are pretty far along in their Parkinson's disease uh, just in the last year uh, they did the first trial of patients that are within like five to ten years of the onset of Parkinson's mm-hmm. requiring uh, medication and shown that it has a, you know a very positive effect in those patients as well so it's 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 been a relatively uh, I guess in you know biomedical time scale <laughs> fast <laughs> um you know, uh, kind of progression showing that, you know, you can do this early um, and you can have an effect. I don't think we really know yet whether doing it early for patients really changes the long-term course of the disease. Mm -hmm. It does definitely, you know, reduce the amount of medication you need. If you've ever seen Michael J. Fox in one of his off moments, you know, a lot of those, you know, those uh, writhing movements that he has are very much characteristic of the drugs used to treat. Parkinson's, I see. like L-DOPA. That's mm-hmm. you know, still the mainstay of therapy, unfortunately. And, you know, if you can stave off those symptoms for a few years, then I think that's, you know, that, that's definitely worth something.
4: But
1: I'm curious if there's any reason why this isn't considered for other neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's, or if it is at all.
2: It certainly is. So this is a very, this is another hot topic. It's... It's... Uh, It's it's been uh, so there's a great website actually called (laughs) neuromodulation.org, and it actually goes through a number of the uh, the trials that are ongoing and how many patients have come out of each. So two of the other indications for deep brain stimulation, and I think I mean they'll try it for anything. I think I mean especially for (laughs) if it's severe enough, you know, when you're out of options, if it's gotten safe enough at this point that you know now it's it's at least on the menu. But obsessive compulsive disorder, it's a different brain area that they target. But that's actually there have been probably sixty patients in a randomized controlled trials uh, nationwide that have undergone deep brain stimulation. And again, we're talking about people who have it so you know, such severe disease that they're you know they can't be helped by any medication or you know shock therapy, electroshock therapy. Uh, so that's one. OCD, uh, depression is another one, which is a huge. You know, swath of uh, you know the the population actually mm-hmm. that has had mixed results. There's a lot of interest. The most recent trial has had I think some bumps, um, as in not showing much effect. <laughs> but um, I I think actually I mean it's a very active area of investigation. Um, I, I, and again, I think part of the problem is we don't we just don't really. We don't know what we're we're doing. We're, right. we're, we're jamming a stick in there, and you know, hoping it gets better. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So I th- I think that you know, almost certainly there, you know, some some patients will benefit, and it's understanding, you know, why is it those patients benefit? What's special about them? What's special about you know? What can we do to make this more beneficial? And that can only, in general, come from a better mechanistic understanding of how this works. And that's why understanding mechanism is actually so important. It's not just. Yeah gilding a lily it's you know this is a this is a crude manipulation and it's it has a, a future but we won't really be able to to see that without a better understanding of how it works
3: yeah mm-hmm. so i guess part of uh, your idea for inducing this plasticity in brains is is involving something called optogenetics which maybe if you can in- explain that um and if you ever think that's something that can be used in humans
2: so this is a this is another fraught question. Uh this is so we have we are very fortunate to be at Stanford University which is you know where Carl Deisseroth really put the key pieces together to make optogenetics a working technology. And it basically involves ma- making uh neurons sensitive to light instead of just electricity instead of having to just you know having to jolt uh, neurons into action now you can shine a light it's basically it's you impregnate uh, neurons with something a channel a a bacterial uh, or algal ion channel that's sensitive to light so the, the end effect is that basically neurons now become sensitive to a particular frequency of light now why is that cool it means that it's you know you don't have to Jolt them with electricity. You can shine a light, and now the neurons that you've, you know, uh, you've made sensitive to light are going to fire. Mm-hmm. And this is an incredibly powerful technique. You know, it's made its way through all of neuroscience, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, the, the main, uh, really one of the benefits is that you can make any population you want sensitive. So instead of just this, you know, uh, a, a globule of neurons right where your electrode tip is, you know, which is the way we would typically stimulate. Now you can have a dispersed network that are, you know, just defined by the genes they express. Just mm-hmm. those uh, neurons will will be sensitive to the light. So, I'm certainly not the first person to think of using this in patients. Mm-hmm. You know, I think actually uh, Carl Dysroth, Rob Malenka, and Tom Sudoff have incorporated <laughs> this concept into Circuit Therapeutics, uh, their company, which. Um, is trying to bring some of these therapies to market. Um, personally, I don't think this is – I think this is an amazing research tool. Um, I think using this technology in people has a very long way to go, and a lot of it has to get back to what I was saying earlier about size issues. Mm-hmm. You know, the human brain – I'm so jealous. when I You know, I try to record from mice, mouse brains – And you know, really, I feel like I'm you know trying to hit a fly with an elephant gun. It's just, it's the size mismatch is insane. Whereas the neurosurgeons, you know, it's what looks to me like a huge electrode is just just pales in comparison to the size of the human brain. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a blessing and a curse. You know, it means that you can do things with uh, that that are that don't cause as much damage to human brain. Um, On the flip side, you know, putting in an a virus, let's say, that carries one of these optogenetic the channels, channels. Yeah. basically, is becomes much more problematic because you really you have to cover a much larger area in order to really have an effect on you know brain circuitry. So, I you know it's that's that's not necessarily where I'm, I'm headed. I don't think that's um, that's not necessarily what I am working towards. I think that we have so much uh it's it's an amazing research tool, especially in uh you know in mice where you have control over genetics but
4: mm-hmm.
2: I think that we can you know harness this tool to teach us something about you know, the therapies that we're already using to make them better, faster, Mm -hmm. you know, stronger, all those Mm -hmm. Mm million-dollar (laughs) men.
0: So you also study the effects of uh, psychoactive drugs, (laughs) such as ecstasy, on positive social interactions and as a potential treatment for neurological disorders, such as depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. So can you talk a little bit about this research? Like, What do we know about what these kinds of drugs do to the brain and why do you think they would be beneficial for treating these diseases?
2: Um, So... (laughs) Excess year MDMA actually has a very storied history, especially in the Bay Area. Uh, psychiatrists <laughs> in uh, the Bay Area have been using it since the 70s, with some published reports, mostly anecdotes, saying how useful of an adjunct it was to behavioral uh, behavioral therapy. So they would do talk therapy with patients that had severe, uh, you know, anxiety or post traumatic stress disorder, and Um, they would incorporate this drug, which is, you know, otherwise known in a kind of a clubbing context. Um, And their, you know, their patients would do amazingly well. And so this is, you know, something that's been known for quite some time. And only recently, uh, I think 2005 or 6, the FDA finally allowed it to be tested as an investigational new drug. And that's with this organization called MAPS that really uh, spearheaded that uh, effort. that's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mm -hmm. And basically, since that time, there have been a couple reasonably sized, randomized, controlled trials using MDMA in the context of psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And these trials have basically involved people that have failed every other therapy And they get this uh, basically talk therapy. And then on one of the talk therapy days, they get a dose, a recreational dose, like a solid dose of MDMA, Mm. where... You know, you can find these online, actually, just a simple Google search will turn them up. But the patient's report, I mean, it will blow your mind to read that, you know, being at peace, being able to confront these things that they (laughs) haven't been able to, you know, relive, to be able to process all of these extremely painful, you know, complex emotions. And, you know, a lot of these patients, up to 80 percent, have had remissions of their severe PTSD for. Years, four years. And just, the just from
3: having MDA during that session,
2: just one, one or two doses. This is, wow. I mean, this is nothing, unreal. Nothing. So it's so, this is so so uh, captivating. Actually, that the Pentagon or the DoD, uh, the head psychiatrist has come out in favor of investigating this. You can never <laughs> imagine, a, you know, a, a, a mashup with you know the people, the a- activists, pro mdma activists, and the <laughs> Department of Defense. You know, twenty years ago, even ten years ago. So that's really – it just shows how serious, you know, people are and that this is something, you know, we have all these vets returning and PTSD is certainly not going away anytime soon. So this is a very – it's it's a fascinating uh, possibility and it's really – it's fundamentally different from every other therapy um, where – and again, getting back to this plasticity idea that every other therapy we use is basically ongoing, you know, beta blockers to reduce your, you know, activated symptoms of PTSD or (laughs) – you know, uh, SSRIs like Prozac or, you know, Zoloft. Those all are kind of things that you take on an ongoing basis. This is something that happens at one specific time. And that, to me, just like with, you know, Eric Kandel's Aplesia experiments, screams to me that you're having, a, there's some kind of plasticity event that's happening mm. that's extremely therapeutic. So that's really where my interest in this has kind of arisen.
0: So do we know how... Uh, MDMA affects the brain. How is that different from your classical sort of uh, SSRI antidepressant?
2: So, they actually acted a very, the, the same ligand, actually, um, the serotonin transporter, uh, MDMA and uh, SSRIs do. Uh-huh. Uh, it turns out, actually, the SSRIs can block the, eff- the effect of MDMA. Oh, really? So, they seem to have opposite effects. Huh. Um, that's not the kind of total of their pharmacology. Behaviorally, it's just radically different. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk to people in SSRIs and they mostly, you know, first of all, it takes four weeks, you know, typically for an SSRI to kick in. Um, and the things that they will report are, you know, lessening of an- anxiety, but also, you know, they're, um, it's, it's, it's not the kind of, like, jackhammer effect that MDMA is. And MDMA is something that you take, and within, you know, 45 minutes, there is, you know, euphoria, there is a sense of connectedness, there is this empathogenic feeling that a lot of people get. This is, you know, very... I mean, talk to, I don't know, <laughs> wander into any club in New York City. I'm sure you'll be able to you know, get lots of anecdotal uh, data. But, but that's yeah. um, so how these drugs actually work. You know, there is uh, it's another huge area of debate. There's very high profile retraction uh, from science in the, the early 2000s uh, from a lab that was showing that MDMA, you know, killed, you know, some big fraction of the squirrel monkeys they were testing <laughs> oh. and caused all of this toxicity of, you know, dopamine neurons, which, you know, makes you think of Parkinson's. Uh-huh. Turns out they had switched the drug with methamphetamine. Somebody, oh. some, the lab. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So this is a huge, you know, high-profile retraction. But this was kind of the, most of the focus had been on for many years is, you know, it's this is a toxic drug. Yeah. And they're really... You know, that's been the kind of the mainstay. Other than that, you know, what do we know? We know that it's, you know, it acts at the serotonin binding site. It's probably involves oxytocin, you know, this hormone that, you know, nursing mothers have really not, not so much more.
1: Mm-hmm. So if we're considering some of these uh, previously recreational drugs for therapies, what's really the difference between the ones that are recreational and the ones that have been only used as treatments in terms of what they do to your brain?
2: The point is a lot of these drugs, um, you know, there, there's clearly drugs that have, um, you know, a strong addictive potential and strong. Uh, there are a lot of problems associated with some stimulants like amphetamine, methamphetamine. Clearly, you know, that they, they've caused a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, one of the key differences here, and ketamine is another drug which has been, you know, recently pinpointed as a treatment for depression. And this is something that's also been known in the clubbing community for years as special K you know, so this is another recreational drug. But um, the difference here is that we're talking about using these drugs in the context of ongoing therapy. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether it be, you know, it's mostly behavioral therapy or physical therapy or any kind of ongoing uh, therapeutic modality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really it's, it's more in kind of how you use them than what necessarily they do, because they all probably have s- similar overlapping uh-huh. pharmacology.
0: So it's all contextual then. So if somebody was depressed and went to a club and did an, an MDA, they wouldn't necessarily have the same positive effect if they were in their therapist's office and did it.
2: Uh, yeah. MDMA is much more context-sensitive. Uh-huh. So that's that actually is true, that there is much more of a, you know, you can, it, it's not doing the same thing. It's not It's not quite in that same class of just psychostimulants party in my head.
0: Uh-huh. So is thinking about an and using other drugs like that as medication, is it changing? Is there, is prescription use for this drug for depression on the horizon anytime soon?
2: Um, I I think no, honestly, for a number of reasons. And part of it is that, again, it's such a powerful drug. And this goes for ketamine, too, which is, again, it's a powerful anesthetic. And you know, the potential for misuse or abuse is huge, mm-hmm. but using it in the context of ongoing therapy. So this is really kind of what why I'm interested in these, that there is, you know, it's these are single shot therapies, mm-hmm. that depression, uh, for example, in the case of ketamine, single infusions of ketamine can lift depression within hours and it lasts for weeks. This is radically different from every other yeah. drug that we know about. MDMA is a similar thing where you have one session in the context of several behavioral sessions. So really, I don't, I never envisioned these being like outpatient. You know, go to your, go to Walgreens, get your MDMA. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and God bless. Um, uh,
0: so how 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 available are these treatments for patients who are? Like currently?
2: So, ketamine actually, ketamine is, uh, much more well accepted than MDMA. And part of that is that, you know, I use ketamine on a near daily basis when I'm in the OR. For fun. Uh, well, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but usually not. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's a, it's a, it's a great anesthetic. It's a, uh, has great pain relief qualities. Um, and it's, a uh, it's it's we've just been using it for years. It's just had its fiftieth uh, birthday, I think, last year. Happy birthday, ketamine. Yes, happy birthday. A little belated. Happy fifty-first, ketamine. Um, much better than its you know, than his daddy daddy, uh, PCP, uh, from whom it was descended. Um, but uh, yeah, so ketamine has had a, a long history of use as anesthetic, but it's really how ketamine basically came to be used as an antidepressant so usually you don't keep people awake (laughs) while (laughs) while you give them ketamine you intend to do surgery on them um and we haven't been tracking you know for example people with like major depression going in for surgery getting ketamine in fact i'm not even sure that you know if you put someone all the way to sleep and do and you know operate on them that it's going to have the same effect the point being that ketamine um Ketamine has a much longer history and is uh, actually used, I mean, we're using it at Stanford in the pain clinic and also in the psychiatry clinics uh, for patients that have depression that's, you know, not, uh, not amenable to treatment by other means or mm-hmm. chronic pain, um, you know, that is, doesn't respond to opiates. So it is something that's gaining increasing use. I think probably it's still restricted to, to academic centers.
0: Mm-hmm. So within the context of a study or? No. Nope. Oh, okay. As,
2: as uh, just standard therapy. Okay. Uh, we actually have a number of patients on the floor at Stanford Hospital right now uh, that are getting ketamine infusions, uh, you know, if they have a you know a complex pain uh, history.
0: Well, excellent. I think we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us,
1: Deborah. Sure.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: This was great. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Marel Tajarian, a postdoc in David Clark's lab here at Stanford and the co-founder of Thwack Science Media Consulting. Brains in Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Adai, Erica Senior, Forrest Coleman, Jordan Sorokin, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains in Bourbon, as well as our podcast NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by going to our website, www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org.